following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Ask him. Father, we do pray for David and for his family. Just ask, Lord, that you would uh, comfort him, that you would, Lord, be uh, magnified even through this. Lord, experience and pray, Lord, for many others in our body who have, particularly parents, Lord, I know that are or um, dying or just going through significant health struggles. And, and Lord, I pray that you would use these things to grow our faith and to draw us nearer to you. Lord, we ask now, God, that you bless your word as we look to it. in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm <clears throat> I'm not much into art, but I do like going to the Getty now and then. Have any of you ever been to the Getty Museum? Have you anyone been to the one in Malibu? A few of you? If you haven't, it's really cool. Um, there's one art story though that caught my eye recently. It was regarding a statue called the Armana Princess. Um, this statue was sold back in 2003 to the Bolton Museum, which is in Bolton County, England. For about a million dollars. It was in the possession of a local family there who had had it for over a hundred years. It's a statue of a woman. Uh, it stands about 20 inches tall. I would have shown a picture, but I don't know if it would probably be inappropriate. But um, it was made of beautiful translucent alabaster. And uh, it is, uh, after being examined by the British Museum, they uh, thought that it was probably the half sister of King Tut, dated at around 1350 BC. The name of the statue was known as the Armana Princess because it was consistent with ancient Egyptian style known as Armana art. In any case, the statue was considered a coup by the museum. One expert had said it was thought to be the most impressive example of its kind in the world. As such, it was a highly regarded piece in their museum in the Egyptian collection. And in fact, during when it was publicly presented in England, the queen presided over the ceremony. But there was a little problem. The statue was a fake. In fact, an antique dealer named Sean Greenhall came across a 1892 auction catalog of artifacts from the estate of George Wyndham. He was an earl in England. And in that list, it described several artifacts and statues from Egypt. And so it gave him enough of a cover, a plausible story, uh, if it were investigated. So, and then he decided he needed to make the piece. And there was a similar one in the Louvre, museum in france uh, which gave him an example to model after so then uh, sean greenhall uh, carved the statue he took a chunk of calcite carved out the statue and then took a mixture of tea and clay to give it an aged look and i'm telling you this not so that you can go out and try it but just how in doing that he was able to through uh, what uh, expert examiners from the british museum of all places thought was a 3400 year old piece of art was actually made in three weeks in a backyard garden shed it's amazing amazing story i understand they still have the piece in the museum it's now on an exhibit called fake art no no joke it really is you know and that even the getty museum susceptible to forgeries about 30 years ago they purchased a greek statue called kuros for about seven million dollars Recent analysis of that statue indicates it, too, may be a forgery. 
And if you go there today, they, ha- they still have the statue on display. And underneath on the plaque, it says Greek, about 530 B.C., or a modern forgery. <laughs> so they're covering their bases. I looked on the website, too. They had a little description, a little disclaimer. It says, The anomalies of the Kuros may be due more to our limited knowledge of Greek sculpture in this period rather than to, to mistakes on the part of a forger. I was thinking, they've got seven million reasons to hope that's true. But yes, even the most experienced of observers can be a, f- a fool, can be tricked. Unfortunately, the same is true in regards to a person's repentance for sin. Both genuine and counterfeit repentance can look very similar on the outside, and it can fool even those closest to the person repenting. Paul noted this in 2 Corinthians 9.10 when he described two kinds of repentance. He said there that there is the sorrow for sin that is according to the will of God, which produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Again, both out, both a genuine and false or counterfeit repentance can look very similar outwardly. But how do you know if it's real? How do you know if it's genuine? Well, that's the question that we're going to answer this morning as we look to our prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2. So please turn there with me where we will see from Joel 2 the heart of true repentance. If you recall from our study last week, Joel was a situation where the people of Judah had just suffered from a plague. Anyone remember what plague? The locust plague. That's right. Do we have a lo- Oh, it's gone. There used to be a locust on this slide. There <clears throat> um, was a plague of locusts. And in Joel's message, as he stood up before the people, this was no random event. This wasn't a natural disaster that had taken place. He tells them God had sent this swarm, that God had sent this massive onslaught of insects. And it happened uh, perhaps in the early reign of King Joash, which would have meant that the people had been steeped in pagan idol worship for the past 20 years. And God sent this swarm to get their attention. God sent this plague in order to warn them to seek God's forgiveness before an even greater day of judgment would come. That was a day referred to by Joel as the day of the Lord. And here in chapter 2, Joel zeroes in on the day of the Lord, on that coming day, with a greater intensity and also greater clarity of what was in store for these people if they did not get right with God. So please stand as I read from Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 17, the message that Joel brought to the people of Judah. Beginning in verse 1, God says through Joel, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be after it again to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them. And nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. With the noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers, and they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. 
They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. And the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping and mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests of the Lord ministers, let the Lord priests, the Lord's ministers weep before the porch and the altar and let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, where is their God? pray again lord thank you again for your word or may your spirit now bring understanding or may your spirit now bring a passionate desire to obey to apply it we thank you again in jesus name amen thanks you may be seated well though we we began at a chapter break in chapter two but there really is no break in thought here Chapter 2 is part of chapter 1. It's all the same message. Joel continues with the theme that he had begun back in chapter 1. God had moved him to tell this people that this plague that had come upon them had not only come from God, but it came with a purpose. There was a reason that God sent this massive swarm of insects to devastate the land. It was intended to be a correction. A correction that would draw them to understand and recognize there was a problem, a problem with sin in their midst, a sin that needed to be repented of. And so Joel, with great poetic skill in chapter 2 here, gives a picture. And he gives a picture of what real repentance looks like, the kind of repentance that God demands and deserves. Joel 2, we see two things. One is the urgency for true repentance in verses 1 through 11, and then the nature of true repentance in verses 12 to 17. Let's look first at the urgency. The beginning of chapter 2 signals a shift in urgency as we move from the first chapter where he calls the people to consider what has happened and to cry out to God for mercy and forgiveness. And here in chapter 2, he begins with this statement calling for a trumpet to be blown from the temple mount. This trumpet or a shofar was a horn. It was made of a cow's horn or a ram's horn, and it was used to call the people to attention. And there would be watchmen that would be around the city, always looking into the distance to see if any hostile force was approaching. And if they were to see any, they would blow this shofar as a warning. It's kind of like the modern-day air siren that, that you might hear during a raid. Joel says that the threat that was coming was fast approaching, and that threat, he calls, was the day of the Lord. Just as he says in Joel one fifteen, where he says, Alas, for the day of the Lord is near. So again, God says in 2 verse 1, My day is coming. It is certainly near. It is imminent. It could happen at any moment. And we see in Joel 3 later, he describes the events of the day of the Lord. And we see there that it is a day in which God brings judgment. 
judgment upon the Gentile nations for their rebellion. It's a time when God will unleash His anger against sin with, a, with an unprecedented force, such as in the days of Noah. Joel 2.2 notes that it will be a time of great darkness. He repeats this idea of darkness several different times in that verse to communicate it's going to be an ominous day, a dark day when God's fury is unleashed. And if you were a, a Jew listening to this message from Joel, you would be a little bit confused from Joel's concern here. For again, the day of the Lord was understood and thought to be a day when God would come upon the Gentile nations to bring judgment for sin. And yet here... Joel says, sound the alarm for God's judgment is coming after you. Verses 2 through 11, Joel then gives a description of the invading force that was coming upon them. Verse 2 describes them like a vast and mighty people spread across the land in a manner not seen before. Verse 3 poetically expresses this army's destructive force, describing it like there's a flame in front of them and a flame behind them. It gives this picture and description of as they approach even a lush and beautiful garden like the garden of eden as they went through move through it and leave it they leave a wasteland verses four and five describes these soldiers are no ordinary soldiers they look and run like horses mountains are no barrier for them as they readily leap upon them and move with such speed as as like a, a grass or a fire burning through dry grass have you ever seen that before it moves incredibly fast a massive and fearsome army verses seven and eight he describes their skill and agility and and being able to climb and and run these are fearless warriors that are advancing together in order in a line organized efficient undeterred if you look at verse eight that phrase that says they fall they uh, burst through the defenses it literally means they fall upon the missiles it's like when you were to fall upon somebody in the Old Testament, that was a description of overpowering them, of overtaking them. And it's saying here that even any projectiles, any defenses that are fired upon this horde would, would be overwhelmed, would have no effect. Nothing prevents them from their goal, and their goal is to reach the city. And here, if we, if we were to step back a minute and put ourselves in the scene here, Joel has masterfully painted this picture for us, a picture that he wants the people of Judah to understand. And he begins it by saying, you know, blow the shofar, which would call the people to attention. And they'd be, what, what's happening? Who's coming upon us? And then they would, Joel describes how they would look out beyond the city and they would see this, this massive sea of an invading force, a sea that would darken the land as it spread across. As they would see that this force was leaving great destruction in their wake. And, and Joel describes here their speed and efficiency. And we would notice as they're coming faster and faster. And all the barriers before them, the hills are no problem. They just leap upon them and over them. Any buildings, any structures, any siege walls, they come massively through and over. They're undeterred. Even hurling things at them in defense would have no effect. And then we get to verse 9, which hits with great force. As he gives four quick phrases in rapid-fire fashion, he says literally, Upon the city they rush, on the wall they climb, into the houses they climb, and through the windows they enter. It's this picture of final destruction and defeat. Nothing is holding this army back, and once they get to their goal, it happens in a moment. It happens like that. The first two phrases he gives here focuses on the city's perimeter being breached. The next two focuses on the interior being overtaken. In these short 
abrupt phrases come with the feel and the speed of a of a cobra strike upon the listeners. So they realize that there's no chance. Once the army reaches the city, it's overrun. Joel has has really effectively drawn a picture here. He's he's drawn a picture of an unstoppable invading force, a picture that sounds eerily similar to the description of the locusts that had actually just come upon them. And this chapter has led to no end of discussion on just what is this army? Who is this army? Is this another army of locusts, a plague of locusts? Is this a human army that he's talking about or is it something else? And is this army something that's happened in the day of Joel or near Joel's time? Or is this something that's to happen in the near future or the far future? Many see this as a human army. They have several reasons for this, how it moves orderly and and advances seemingly with a rank and a strategy. And the army is referred to as people. It wasn't unusual in ancient Near Eastern literature to refer to an army as a uh, like a plague of locusts. Verse 20 alludes to a northern army, which that was the most common direction an invading force would come into Israel, would be through the north. God also used other nations' armies as a means of judgment and correction upon Israel. In fact, Zechariah describes a time in the future when Jerusalem will be attacked by a Gentile army. Some think this human army could be referring to an historical one, such as uh, Babylon or Persia, Greece or Rome. Others think that it may be a yet future army that will come upon Israel in the last days. And I think, you know, a human army is plausible, but it seems more likely Joel here is describing plague of locusts. has a very similar description and wording as in chapter 1. And notice in verses 5 and 7, he describes this army like a mighty people which run like mighty men and climb the wall like soldiers. If this were a human army, describing it as like a human army would be a rather strange way to describe it. Also, there's an emphasis here on the army's massive size. It's a chief characteristic of a horde of locusts. And again, that was an emphasis that was drawn out in chapter 1 from the actual locust plague. Again, locusts can easily number into the billions. Emphasis is given here in chapter 2 on their leaping ability, something characteristic of insects, and also the swarming nature of this army on the land and over the walls and into the homes. Again, that matches what's observed about locusts. Exodus 10, one of the plagues that hit Egypt, it describes in verse 15 that the locusts covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was darkened. It was such a thick mass in that day that it, it looked like a black Uh, darkness just being spread across the earth. Verse 3 reveals that this army primarily destroys the vegetation rather than the people or the structures, and that's more consistent for locusts. And also, too, the way that Joel describes the land after they've moved through it as being scorched. It's the same description he gives in Joel 1.19 for the plague that had hit them before. And this plague that is coming is... Not the one that he described in chapter 1, but it is one yet future. He introduces it in verse 1 by saying, The day of the Lord is coming. It is near, but it hasn't happened yet. Then after describing the army, he again refers to the future day of the Lord. And also in verse 10, that description of the sun and moon and stars being darkened, the heaven and earth quaking, that's event characteristic of the end times of the day of the Lord. Joel 3.15, he describes that same, same way. 
So this is an event yet future. And some have said, well, this chapter sounds a lot like Revelation chapter 9. If some of you remember, there's a plague of locusts that's planned in the end times. And these creatures are uh, sent out from the abyss to attack humanity, to attack those who have the mark of the beast. Some think, well, maybe he's talking about those here. But there's one significant difference in that in Revelation 9, God commands the locusts not to harm the land, but the people. Here, it's just the opposite. They are destroying the land. And there's still great debate about what this army really is. Uh, prophetic literature brings that about. In fact, there'll be many times as we walk through these prophecies together where we'll find places where it's just, it hasn't happened yet. And so there's not enough information for us to be able to understand exactly what is going on. But I think Joel here may have left things a little bit ambiguous on purpose because the point isn't really the identity of this army necessarily. The, the point and the emphasis here is the destructive power of this army and the fact that it is coming, and it is coming soon. It can arrive at any moment against them. And think about, put yourselves in the place of these people. They had just gone through this devastating plague. This wave after wave of locusts had gone through the land and consumed everything. Their stomachs are grumbling from hunger. They had, their fields are devastated and destroyed. They have nothing in their barns to, to look to for a coming crop. And think how you would feel if you heard Joel get up and say a message, Some, another worse plague is coming soon. Oh, it'd be devastating. It would get your attention. And Joel here is talking about the fact that this locust plague that they recently experienced was but a harbinger of a more imminent and vast invasion that they will face on Yahweh's day if something doesn't change. After describing this army under God's command, he poses a question at the end of verse 11 where he says, Who can endure it? Who can endure it? Who can bear up under Yahweh's day when it comes? Who's the one who will avert God's judgment in that day? And thankfully, he answers the question in the very next verse. In verse 12, look there with me. He says, this is the Lord speaking, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with weeping and fasting and mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Now turn to the Lord your God. So now Joel moves from the urgency for true repentance in the first 11 verses to the nature of true repentance in verses 12 to 17. As in chapter 1, Joel again calls the people to respond. That was a theme all throughout the first chapter where Joel, in describing the events, he kept going back and calling the people to consider what happened and to to mourn and weep and lament and go before God. Here again in chapter 2, he's calling for a response. And so God says, sound the alarm, sound the alarm, blow the shofar, not so that you can prepare yourselves to defend against this invading force, but to submit. To repent. You don't see the word repent here in your translation. Instead, you see the word turn or return. The idea from it comes from the Hebrew word shuv. Shuv is predominantly used to describe a physical turning. For example, if I were to give you directions to the parking lot, I would tell you, as you get up, turn around and go the other direction and you'll get to the parking lot. That's the idea, shuv. It's just physically turn has the same idea in the moral realm. It's to change your direction morally. In fact, shuv is the most commonly used word by the prophets as they were describing and expressing this idea of turning away from sin and turning to God. 
This moral turning was not a 90-degree turn either. It wasn't that, okay, just change your direction a little bit. Take a right or a left. Or it's not even a 120-degree turn or 150-degree turn. The idea of turn here is literally turn all the way around. Make a U-turn. Picture that. Put it in your Bibles. Put a U-turn sign. That's exactly what he's talking about, a complete change of direction. Notice the emphasis here is God repeats it both in verses 12 and 13. Turn to me. Turn to me. Joel doesn't mention any specific sins here, which is interesting. The prophets often talk about that in the midst of their uh, messages. They'll bring up specific sins that the people were committing and, and call them to repent specifically of those sins. But here, Joel doesn't mention any. The only reference at all in the entire message is back in chapter 1. He refers briefly to drunkards. But basically, in this entire prophecy, Joel doesn't talk about any specific sin, only the need to turn from it, to do that complete 180. That says this, that ultimately the problem isn't this sin or that sin in particular. The problem is the heart from which those sins are born, right? In fact, the change must begin there. And notice that's why God doesn't just say, turn to me or return to me. He says, return to me with what? You're reading it there, right? Return to me with all your heart. Or he says in verse 13, he says, rend your heart. See, in these two commands, God reveals the nature or the heart, if you will, of genuine repentance. The heart of true repentance. What it looks like. The first command, he says, is turn to me. And again, turn to me how? Turn to me with all your heart. Turn to me with all your heart. And remember again, heart here in the biblical sense isn't just talking about our emotions. Heart refers to our our will, our desires, our intentions, our thoughts, our understanding, our conscience, and our emotions. It's the inner you. And he says here to turn with all your heart, which says what? What's God most interested in? External change alone? He just wants you to see, clean up your act? No, no. He wants our full heart. He wants our wills, our desires, our emotions, our thoughts. This is even seen in that prepositional phrase, to me. He says, turn to me. He's not just simply saying, turns towards me and come towards me. The idea in the Hebrew here is, come all the way. This isn't a a partial coming, but come all the way to me. Don't just aim my direction, but you come and arrive at the destination. Turn to me. Come to me, he's saying. It's complete. It's a permanent reversal he's commanding here and notice he also adds these terms to come with not only your whole heart but come with weeping fasting and mourning it's not that he wants to see some external display of emotion but these are actions which reflect a real heart condition right what do they reflect a a fasting a weeping a mourning what does that show about what's going on in the heart if it's genuine there's a brokenness right there's a distress there's a there's a sorrow there's an anguish, an anguish over sin. And as in chapter 1, when Joel called the people to gather together, he tells the priests, gather the people together for a fast, for a solemn assembly, so they can cry out to the Lord again. Here in chapter 2, in verse 15, he says the same thing. Gather together for a fast, consecrate a fast. Gather for a solemn assembly together. And notice in verse 15, no one was exempt, regardless of your age, Whether you just had a baby or not, regardless of your marital status, you are to come. 
And it's interesting how he describes it here as they come. He tells the priest that they are to stand between the altar and, and the uh, temple, between the holy place. If you remember the design of the temple mount, the temple area was there were two courts. There was an outer court where everybody could, could go. And then there was an inner court called the court of the priests. And in that inner court was the altar, which was in front of the holy place. And the altar was where sacrifices would be brought. And then there was a pathway from that altar to the entrance of the holy place. And only the priests could go in there. You remember what's inside the holy place? Holy play, holy things. That's right. I heard it. Somebody said, right? There's two rooms, right? There's a front room and then a back room. Back room had the ark. That was a place only the priest, the high priest could go once a year during Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And what's interesting here is as the priests come before the altar and they're said to stand between the altar and the holy place because they had nothing to put on the altar. Remember from chapter one, all the grain's gone. The drink offerings are gone. The land's been devastated. They have nothing to bring. And so he says to the priest, stand between the altar and the holy place, face the holy place and weep for that condition. Cry out to God for mercy. How many times have we seen so far in Joel telling the people to fast and to mourn, to cry out to God? And that wasn't because God was wanting to simply shame and humiliate them so he could feel appeased. No, he wanted them to, to grasp and to understand the seriousness of how sinful sin is. Sometimes we can forget that. Sometimes we can forget just how evil sin is. We come to a passage like this and see God's intensity and keep saying, weep and mourn and lament and come to me bowed and, and with guilt and shame. And we'll say, wow, that's a little radical over the top, God. What, I mean, can't they just confess their sin and apologize? Wouldn't that be enough? But you see, our, our response to sin needs to match the gravity of it. You know, if somebody pulled a nickel out of your purse or your wallet... That would be wrong. But if they simply apologize to you, that, that would probably be appropriate. But what if somebody murdered your child? True repentance for such a horrific act would be more than a simple apology, wouldn't it? And to think a holy and loving God to a holy and loving God, any sin that we commit is murder because it required the death of his son to pay for it. But God is so gracious. He's so patient. He's ready to forgive, but only to the one who brings genuine repentance, who's truly sorrowful for sin. And if we look back at verse 13, we see a second command that God gives, which shows the nature of true repentance. It's a command, actually, it's not found anywhere else in Scripture. He says there to rend your heart and not your garments. Remember a particular practice in the ancient Near East when a, a tragic event came upon, you learned of the death of a loved one or some other tragedy, a response would often be tearing of the clothing, right? That would display the anguish, the sorrow, the distress being experienced in that event. And so here God in a poetic and picturesque way describes a, a picture where he's saying, I, I don't want to just see the clothing ripped. I want to see your heart being ripped. I want to see that there's impact for, you know, again, God, he doesn't want to see an outward act, but an inward change, right? Repentance isn't merely what one does. It's what one becomes. 
It's not something that you do. It's it's something that you are. But what does this look like? When he says to rend the heart, what does a rended heart look like? Well, I think probably the best, clearest example in all Scripture is familiar psalm, Psalm 51. I'd ask if you could turn there with me for a moment. Keep your hand in place and Joel, we're going to go back there. But Psalm 51, this psalm is the prayer of a man uh, deeply broken over his sin. Who's that man? King David. You remember David's story. This is tragic event in his life he chose to sin committing adultery with Bathsheba tried to cover it up murdered had her husband Uriah murdered and then he kept kept it buried for several months until Nathan confronted him and then David finally broke and in his brokenness he gives a passionate prayer which shows what a rended heart looks like in Psalm 51 he wrote down that prayer and we have it. And as I read this psalm, I want you to look for look for the things that David repeats. Look for the things that, that show a passion and emotion. Look for the things that demonstrate what a rended heart looks like. I'll be beginning in verse 1. Psalm 51, the psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You alone I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. David here shows that a rendered heart goes beyond external activity. In fact, he said, if, if, I could just, if I could do something, bring a sacrifice, I'd do it. But David recognizes that genuine repentance requires a much deeper level. It requires a heart that is rended, that is torn. And here we see several characteristics of what a rended heart looks like. First one is a a rended heart accepts full responsibility. Notice how many times when he uses a, a word for sin, the word that's in front of it is often my. Verse 1, he says, blot out my transgressions. 
Verse 2, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Verse 3, he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. What's he doing here? He's taking responsibility for his sin. He's saying, this is my sin. I own it. I did it. He doesn't throw out excuses. And, well, you know, if Bathsheba wasn't bathing where she was, I, I wouldn't have seen her. Or, you know, I was, just, I was just in a weak moment. Or any guy would have done that. He doesn't say any of those things. Notice he says, I sinned against you, God. It's my sin, my iniquity, my transgression. Brothers and sisters, if you are truly repentant, then don't blame shift. Don't justify it. Don't give excuses. Don't be defensive. Own up to your sin and confess it. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. A rended heart confesses full responsibility before God. And secondly, a rended heart sees sin as sin. You know, I asked you before, look for things that are repeated. Did you notice how many times he repeats the word sin or words that mean sin? Iniquity, transgression, sin, evil, blood guiltiness. Thirteen times in this psalm he does that. What is that conveying? What's he communicating in that? It's a passionate statement that sin is sin. It is sinful. It is evil. It is wicked. It is terrible. You see, a, a rendered heart doesn't sugarcoat it. It doesn't minimize it. It doesn't say, you know, it's just a, it was an accident. It was something uh, just happened. It was a mistake. In fact, that's often our mentality sometimes with sin. You probably often heard the definition of sin in Greek or Hebrew is this idea of missing the mark. And a lot of people think that means that the person was intending to aim at the target. That's not the idea, actually. You miss the mark because you're not even aiming at it. You're over here. It's an intentional missing of the mark. It wasn't a, a slip or an accident. That's why sometimes you've got to be careful of using that word, I fell. It's almost like I was walking along. Whoa, I just tripped. What was that? No, sin is we, we jump into those holes. We jump in. Satan might put them in front of us and maybe have the temptation there, but, but we see it. And we choose to trip ourselves up. We choose to miss the mark. Again, a rended heart doesn't sugarcoat it. Gardner Springs said, It's one thing to mourn for sin because it exposes us to hell, and another to mourn for it because it is an infinite evil. It's one thing to mourn for it because it is injurious to ourselves, another to mourn for it because it is offensive to God. See what he's saying there? That it's not... It's one thing to mourn or be sorry over sin because of what it brings and the consequences and the difficulties. He said it's another to recognize what it is. Now it's a sin against God. David shows us thirdly that a rended heart also wants complete cleansing. Do you see how many times he talks about this idea? In verse 1, blot out my transgressions. In verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purify me and wash me. Verse 9, blot out all my iniquities. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart. Someone should write a song about that verse. Right? This idea that he has and repeating this over and over and over. And it's this idea 11 different times. He said, take this off of me, God. Get it off of me. It's like something dirty on him. He wants washed off. We've been um, doing some work in our house and we've been taking out this old insulation old junky stuff that's blown in and you get it on your arms 
And it's like the little glass fibers get in there. And it's just like the whole day you're going, get it off, get it off. That's exactly how David felt about his sin. He wanted to be washed clean, have it removed. In fact, that in verse 2, that idea, the words, uh, the meaning behind wash me and cleanse me, it's this idea of an intense scrubbing. Like picture a person with a washboard on a river washing their clothes and wringing out the, the clothing and putting it back and rubbing it hard over the board to get all the dirt out. That's the picture, that's the intensity that David is communicating here. Wash me thoroughly from my sin. Get it off of me, God. See, a rended heart hates sin, not just for what it, does but for what it is thomas watson said this a true penitent is a sin loather if a man that loathed that which makes his stomach sick much more will he loathe that which makes his conscience sick christ is never loved till sin be loathed fourth characteristic of a rended heart is that it yearns to be right with the lord notice how many times he repeats this idea of wanting to have his joy with his relationship with god restored it says in verse 14 deliver me then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness and this is a key difference if you're trying to determine whether it's a genuine or or false repentance it's right here this idea of true repentance is more than just feeling bad it is recognizing that The sin has produced a break in your relationship with God, and that is what torments you. Yes, the consequences hurt, but you want more than anything. Not not getting out of those consequences necessarily, but being right with God. I see so many people, so many, I get caught in this myself, where, where you feel bad about getting caught, you feel bad about letting somebody down, you feel bad about suffering the consequences... And yes, those things can be painful, but the real pain of a truly repentant person says, I sinned against God. I've turned my back on the holy and loving God who created me and made me and sent his son to die for me. That's where the true pain of a rended heart comes from. Also, too, David shows a rended heart is a broken and humble heart. Look at verse 16. He says, you don't delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. What does he say here are the sacrifices of God that he's looking for? He's looking for a broken and contrite heart. Again, beloved, that's that's all God is looking for. He's not waiting for some external act that you can do to make up for your sin as if it's, you know, okay, I did this bad thing. What, What number of good things do I need to do so God's happy with me again? We can't do enough. To make God happy again. We can't pay for that sin. All God is looking for is a person admitting and recognizing that it's wrong. That that the person that's broken over their sin. That's all we can bring God is a broken heart. One that's humble. says, there's nothing I can do, Lord. I know how evil this sin is and it's my sin. I own it. Please forgive me. That's what we look for when somebody sinned against us. That they mean it. That it's genuine. God accepts a broken and contrite heart. One that's truly humbled. And that is the heart that will respond. When asked in Sunday school class what repentance was, one boy said, Repentance is being sorry for your sins. The young girl behind him added, Being sorry enough to quit. Captures it pretty well. God wants you to see the gravity 
of your sin has has gripped your heart, that you're overwhelmed with what you've done, that you'd do anything to be right with God again and not to pursue that sin, that you've turned with all your heart, with a rended heart. This kind of repentance begins at the cross of Jesus Christ. There may be some here that you've never truly repented of your sin. And to you I say, you know what? He's not interested in filling pews. He's interested in owning hearts. He's not looking for outward compliance. He's looking for inward allegiance. He's not satisfied with being acknowledged as God, but wants to be loved as Father. That relationship can't happen until you admit that you've sinned against your Creator. That you have not worshipped Jesus as Lord and Savior. Let me ask you, have you ever come to Jesus with a truly broken heart? Have you ever come to Him recognizing how bad your sin is and crying out to Him for mercy and for forgiveness, for real? Lift your eyes to the cross. For on that cross, it's a Savior who died for those sins. And again, all you can do is come to Him with a broken heart. He'll take care of the rest. He's taking care of the rest. And then look not only to the cross, but look to the empty tomb because that Savior is not there anymore. He's risen from the dead to show that He is Lord. But friend, don't delay. Don't delay. Joel Toole, remember, he says, God says, yet now, even now, now, right now, He says, turn to the Lord. Right now, rend your heart. Writer of Hebrews says repeatedly, today, if you hear His voice... Don't harden your hearts. Don't wait for tonight or tomorrow or the next day, next week, next month, next month. Do it now. And that was the point Joel was getting at. This coming day of the Lord is imminent. It can happen any second. Don't wait. We have such a habit of waiting. It's very urgent. In fact, so urgent. There's an interesting picture here in Joel 2, if you go back there for a moment, in verse 16. Again, with that picture, the scene where all the people are called to gather, young and old. Whether they're, uh, whatever condition they were in, they were to come to the temple. And you notice there where he talks about this idea of the bridegroom coming from his room and the bride from her chamber. You know what he's referring to there? That was a couple's wedding night. The room and chamber there are words for the tent that was uh, where a wedding couple would go after the wedding feast and would consummate their marriage. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, even if it's your wedding night, this is so important. Don't go to the honeymoon suite. You need to be down at the temple. There's an urgency here. It's the most important thing they could be dealing with. Now is the time that they were to turn. Now is the time that they were to to lament and weep and seek forgiveness and not wait. Most important relationship you have is with the Lord Jesus Christ. That takes priority over everything else. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. If you've not sought reconciliation with Him, God's speaking to you now, yet even now, turn to Him. And He's ready to forgive if it's a genuine repentance. Now sometimes we wonder, well, that change that's happened to me, the change that God promises with repentance, was it real? Was it real? And I'd ask you, the way you can test this is look for if there's a change in your affections. 
Do you want to know God? Do you want to spend time with Him? Do you have a hunger for His Word? Do you desire to praise Him in word and in song? Do you wish to be with His people? Do you love Jesus? Is there an affection for Him? Jonathan Edwards wrote a wonderful book talking about a changed heart has affections, emotional affections for Christ. Do you want to please Him? And when you sin against Him, and and sin we will, does it hurt you that you've sinned against Him? Do you want to, more than anything, be restored? Again, let us remember that repentance isn't just something that happens at salvation, right? Christian life is not defined by a one-time prayer of repentance. Becoming a Christian does mean you're transformed. It, It does mean that sin is no longer enslaving you. It does mean that you've been delivered from God's judgment. But yet you're not totally freed from sin yet in terms of its presence. You are a new creation in Christ, but not yet a perfect one. That first act of repentance and coming to Christ is only going to be followed by many, many others. First John, right? Confess your sins. He's speaking to believers there. It's ongoing, and God will forgive. In fact, the book of Revelation, remember Jesus is addressing specifically seven churches there? Of those seven churches, he tells four of them they needed to repent for some specific sins they were committing. Believers do sin. But believers... Truly, true believers recognize and want to deal with that sin. If you're experiencing certain sin in your life and you're looking over time and you're noticing very little or no change in that area, you can be confident that you haven't genuinely repented in that area. Genuine repentance without lasting change it just doesn't happen. If, if Lasting change doesn't happen, excuse me, if there's not genuine repentance. And if that's you, Saint... Let me give you a few things to to consider. First is memorize and dwell on Joel 2, 12, and 13. Joel 2, 12, and 13. Memorize that. Think about what what does rending my heart look like in this specific area of my life that I'm struggling with. And don't neglect spending consistent time with the Lord and with His people. It's very important. God speaks. His Spirit speaks through His Word and through fellow believers. Also, study Psalm 51 carefully. And I would add to that Psalm 32. Memorize verses from that so you can meditate on them. Read Thomas Watson's excellent book called The Doctrine of Repentance. Yeah, he's a Puritan. He wrote a long time ago, but he's very clear and easy to read. Wonderful, wonderful writer. Thomas Watson, The Doctrine of Repentance. And then follow that up, part two, J.C. Ryle's book called Holiness. And lastly... I encourage you, open up to a brother or sister and let them know this area you're struggling with so that they can help you be accountable and pray for you and give you wise counsel. In fact, it's interesting as I was studying uh, Joel 2, you know, in that part where he's talking about gathering everybody together to the temple. I thought it was very interesting. You know, he didn't tell them, go home and repent. He said, gather together and come to me at the temple and repent. See, that tells me again, sanctification is a community effort. Yeah, Ephesians has snuck its way even to Joel. (laughs) But that's how God has designed it. He's designed us as a community to fellowship with one another. And even in the process of repentance, we are to be participating and helping, coming alongside one another to do that. Amen? 
Before we end our time together, look at verse 13. I'm sorry I went a little bit longer this morning. But I want you to look there just for a moment. He says there again, Return or turn to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. You notice God doesn't say here, Turn or burn, repent or rot, confess or be crushed. Rather, he gives an invitation. Gives an invitation to be reconciled to a good and gracious God. You see, in the end, repentance isn't just about averting judgment or correction. It's about being adopted, an adopted child of the Father. It's about knowing the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about walking by His Spirit. It's about having a a deep and continuing abiding relationship with our wonderful God and all that He is. And all that he has. And this is where Joel is going to take us next. The blessings from genuine repentance. Lord, uh, we desire to be pure people, holy people that pleases you. Lord, because we want that closeness, we want that fellowship with you that you've created us for. But our sin, our sin is a barrier to that. God, I pray if there are any here whose sin has been a barrier to their repentance to put their faith in Christ, that you would open their eyes now, that they would seek you, turn to you while there is time. For we know you will forgive. And Lord, for those of us that are your children, I pray, God, you would bring these words to mind every day this week, rending our hearts and not our garments, just so that we'd be reminded, Lord, our sin needs to be confessed and needs to be confessed right away from a, from a heart that is broken. And Lord, we thank you that you readily forgive and that you are so gracious to us. May we lift up the name of the Lord Jesus in our lives, in our hearts. And in his name we pray. Amen.